Hi guys, just a heads up before this episode. This episode of It's A Lot features discussions of sex work and a brief discussion of an abusive relationship. We've popped resources in the description of this episode if it brings up any issues for you. Also, Tilly's nightmare fuel, don't do what she did. You'll understand when you hear it. Okay, now on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of It's Lot with me, Abby Chatfield. Today we have an amazing guest, Tilly Lawless, queer queen, amazing writer, Instagram caption extraordinaire. The only Instagram captions that I actually read that are more than three words long. Sex worker, author, all the things. Not How are you, Tilly? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm a little bit sleepy, I will say. I feel like this time of day on a rainy day is kind of nap time (laughs) it's time for a nap well after this you can have a nice nap a well-deserved nap (laughs) yeah exactly thank you so much for joining me i'm so excited to talk to you i was doing like my i mean when i say research i mean like looking at all your instagram captions again but like i was doing my research and i read (laughs) i read the first like few pages of your book elise gave it to me because she had it and she was like read it it's so fucking good but i followed you for a while i think i feel like i followed you for like i mean i've definitely been around for a year so yeah I mean, you've, you've existed. You you're could have. Over, yeah. You're over 12 months old. Anyway, been a fan for a while and I have so many questions about so many different things. So it might seem chaotic, but we're going to get there in the end. I love chaos. Yeah. I felt it. I felt it. <laughs> chaotic good. We're chaotic good. <laughs> so you've written a book called Nothing But My Body and it is about your your time in sex work. Can you talk the listeners through what the book is about? Because you said it's not a memoir. Yeah. But it's close enough to a memoir. So can you explain that? Because my, my little pea brain didn't understand. Okay. So, I mean, it's not a memoir technically because it's not all true. I think for nonfiction to be nonfiction – is going to be true, right? So probably only 80% of it is true. And then I've taken things that aren't true. And even the things that are true, I've switched around the time to create a narrative. And I've like put something that happened here, there, and I've combined like, you know, three days across three different years into one day. Because what I actually wanted to do was like, you know, it's set across eight days. And what I actually wanted to do was show fluctuations in mental health and how the pace of your thoughts changed according to what was happening in your own mind and also what was happening in the external world around you. So I like had notes in my phone, you know, and like I took significant things that had happened in my life and been like, well, what if it happened then? And like, what if this happened there? And like, what what if this happened to me, which didn't actually happen to me, but could have happened, you know? And so th- that's why it's not a memoir because it's not completely true, but it is right. drawn on my life really strongly. Yeah. Inspired by. It's an inspired by moment. We love that. Yeah. And kind of interestingly, oh, I don't know. Have you read Monkey Grip by Helen Garner? No, should I? Yeah, you'd really enjoy it. Like 70s, like novel, very much kind of a precursor to Candy, you know, about like her dysfunctional love with a heroin addict, but really good, very Melbourne in the 70s. And she, interestingly, I learned recently, it's like same thing, kind of auto fiction. And like she used diary entries she'd written to then create this whole book. And that's very much what I've done in that I've taken diary entries from my Instagram and then crafted a narrative around it. Yeah, because your Instagram is like a journal. It's kind of like, and like, I don't like comparing you to her, but it's kind of like Caroline Calloway. Yeah, I would hope that I was Caroline Calloway with some morality. Like, yes, 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 yes. It's like, it's like um, (laughs) what we wish Caroline Calloway was. It's our optimal Caroline Calloway because you have these interesting captions that are like journal entries and it's kind of a... I don't know if it's like a new way to interact with social media or if it's like a traditional way, but it's almost like little mini blog posts. And they're, like I said before, they're the only ones that I actually read. So that was how you kind of structured the book. You went back to your Instagram posts because you were writing real life stuff. Totally. And took bits and was like, this is a great jumping off point. I'll continue with this thought process. Yeah. Well, thank God for your documentation, babes. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Thank <laughs> God. God I got my Instagram back when it was deleted so I could write the book. <laughs> Why did it get deleted? Oh, I've had it deleted a few times, actually. I mean, something to always keep on the back burner is you always need to know someone who's fucking someone at Facebook or Instagram because it's the only real way to get back an Instagram account is through connections. You can't get a hold of them. Even if you have 10 million followers, you cannot get a hold of them unless you know someone person, like a friend or someone you're fucking. Yeah, yeah. You've got to to keep someone on the back burner. (laughs) 
at all times. Keep them in the rotation. Yeah. Someone is here on Facebook. So um, your book is about you doing sex work um, and you began sex work at age 19. Can you tell us a bit about that, how it started, why it started? I mean, I know this, but tell the people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was actually just turned 20. I moved to Sydney at 19 and then started sex work at 20. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, that's all good. I was just, I'm only just correcting because I feel like it would be disingenuous to say I started at 19. <laughs> um, it doesn't actually matter. But yeah, so I moved to Sydney from northern New South Wales to go to uni because I got a scholarship to Sydney Uni. And But even with a scholarship, it's obviously really expensive to live in Sydney out of home. And so I was like, what can I do to support myself through this time that's kind of financially lucrative but won't eat into study time? And I was like weighing up drug dealing or sex work because they're both, you know, things that you're meant to earn a lot of money in. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Easily and have no strict hours, I guess. Exactly. No strict hours, a lot of time to study. And then I went with sex work because I didn't think I was discreet enough for drug dealing. And so I started an escort agency and it was just, I mean, I mainly fucked women up to that point in my life like I'd only fucked one guy in my life when I started sex work so the first client I ever fucked was only the second guy I'd ever fucked and it actually just was remarkably easy and I don't know whether that was because I am into girls generally so there was just like a real delineation between the work the sex I was having at work and sex in my private life but I actually like I was like it was just such an anti-climax that first client I was like is that it but also it's so much easier to make guys come you know after you've been fucking women yeah I mean, I'm like a baby bi, so I've slept with like a handful of women. And the reason why I sleep with more men is honestly because I'm like, it's easy to get a good report card. Like, oh, I'm, I guess, 100%. And for them to be like, you're so hot. And you're like, okay. Literally put your body <laughs> in hot positions and they're like, whoa, like frothing. It's like, it's whoa, like, what's going yeah. on? And you're like, I'm just, I'm just leaning over a bed. Like, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally doing the least. Or like, you're lying when you're lying on your stomach and they're like, fucking and you're like this is not revolutionary like i'm literally doing i'm planking and you think that i'm like changing the game <laughs> i was gonna ask about this actually uh being a queer woman if it made it sex work quote-unquote like easier or harder or less complicated or more complicated but you just it's it was i definitely think easier and and less complicated also because it's so much easier to date women when you're a sex worker then um, be a straight sex worker because men are often threatened by the fact that you're dating other men. Yes, yeah. So I read somewhere that you said that the only girlfriends you've had that have been jealous about you doing sex work have been jealous because of if you earn more money than them. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've dated I've dated a bunch of sex workers and I yeah have had one that was particularly jealous if I earned more money, yeah. That is so interesting because I feel like a lot of the male ego is tied up in like owning someone's sexuality or owning someone, whereas I guess the women that you dated, like, like I guess you said they aren't getting jealous and the only reason was if you, they felt you were a direct competitor. Totally. It was like women competitiveness coming into our relationship. Sure. That is so interesting. So how did how did they voice that or did you just feel it? To be honest, that particular relationship was really abusive. Like she was also physically abusive. So her jealousy in now different earnings was just one facet of a dynamic in our relationship. So like I yeah, I wouldn't say sex workers that I've generally dated have been like that, but this one particular girl was, but she was yeah, she was just a awful person to date in general. Wow, so it just wasn't it just wasn't Great. So it was no, a, shit, a shit, a shit, shit time. So speaking of romantic relationships, I also wanted to talk to you about how being a sex worker, I guess because you work a lot in destigmatizing sex work and obviously speaking about it a lot on your Instagram and writing a whole ass book about it. And you, I read an article you wrote for The Guardian that was amazing. I want to talk to you about OnlyFans in a little bit. But how do you think being a sex worker has affected your personal relationships with friends and family and romantic we've discussed? But have you ever like met a new friend? They've not known what you've done for work and then they've found out, quote unquote, not that it's anything to find out, but they've like not realised and then they've changed how they are around you? Or are you just kind of in circles where you us feeling safe and welcomed all the time definitely when I first started so I've been doing sex work for um, more than eight years now and when I first started definitely there were some friendships that it affected and people that I met that would you know say some quiet anti-sex work things and view me differently when they found out about my work but these days firstly I've been doing it for so long that it's very rare that I meet someone who doesn't already know I'm a sex worker and I also think in eight years 
the attitudes to sex work have changed a lot in people of our generation, at least, I think, in Australia. Like, I very rarely encounter someone in Sydney in our age who's not, like, comfortable, or not necessarily comfortable, but, like, pro-sex work, you know? Family-wise, yes, it definitely affected things. A lot of my extended family are really Christian and are definitely not okay with my work. But I was kind of slightly estranged from my extended family anyway before sex work because I was gay and they were Christian and various things. So, like, it wasn't really a loss there, you know? Right. Yeah. So when you're saying that the attitudes towards sex work have changed in those eight years, what are some noticeable things, like some tangible things that you've noticed and what do you think you attribute that to? That's so interesting that you've noticed a big change. I think there's been greater visibility of sex workers online and, like, sex workers speaking about their work, like me amongst, like, many other people. Um, I think it's actually even got to the point that it's kind of trendy to do sex work now. So, like, what I compare it to is, like, in the 90s, there was, like, the rise of what we call lesbian chic. So there were a lot of, like, fashion adverts and stuff that used lesbians. Yes, you can say that, like, led to greater acceptability of, like, um, lesbians, but it was also about kind of fetishizing lesbians and, like, seeing them as kind of, like, cool and subversive and stuff and, like, using them to sell things and stuff. And so I kind of see a similar thing right now with sex work, which is that I think, like, sex work is cool and trendy and kind of fetishized. And it's like, yes, that means that some people accept it more, but it also isn't true acceptance of it. But I do hope that it will lead to true acceptance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like step one. And, like, obviously ideally we'd go 10 years ahead and we would just be at full acceptance, but this is the weird bumpy road. This is the weird bumpy road, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also, like, if we have to get there via it being, like, fetishised and people being like, whoa, that's so, like, cool and unique and unusual that you do that. It's like if that's the way we have to go to get there, that's the way we have to go, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Is it kind of like, this is probably not really the same argument, but like body positivity versus body neutrality? Yes. Like that argument where it's like, oh, wow, she's so proud of her body, even though she's a plus size woman. It's like, no, like this is just the interesting thing about me isn't that I'm a plus size woman or that I have a certain body or a certain ability. Yeah. Is that kind of like the full acceptance that we're aiming towards? Yeah, that's, that's the way I see it. Like I feel like I should, in 10 years' time, I should be able to do sex work and people won't sit there and be like, oh, my God, that's so interesting and fascinating. Like, your work must be so unusual. Like, tell me all about it because it should just be one job among many jobs that people do, you know? Yeah, so very similar. Yeah, like if you're in HR, they wouldn't be asking the same thing. You're probably dealing with the same amount of people. <laughs> you're like, babe, I'm sure I don't really care. Um, but I guess, it, yeah, it is like the weird growing pains, I guess, of anything that was once happened because I feel like it's happened really quickly from someone who isn't, a sex worker. I have a few friends who do OnlyFans and if I have one friend who's a full service sex worker, but I don't have any, I'm not like in sex worker groups. So it's interesting from the outside perspective, seeing how quickly I perceive it to be changing, but I can't tell if it's because I'm in an echo chamber and what I do for work is very much kind of going towards that that space. You know what I mean? Whereas three years ago, I was in a corporate job. Well, look, it is changing, not just in the echo chambers that we exist in, because like you see, for example, so New South Wales and New Zealand have been the only places in the whole world to have decriminalisation of sex work for a very long time. And then last year, Northern Territory got decrim. And this year, Victoria has announced they're getting de- they're going to get decrim. So like within Australia, the laws are actually very much changing to be more pro-sex work. So there is actually an advancement there beyond our echo chamber. But yes, I think the fact that we're in the echo chamber also applies. Yeah, where it's like you, you have this weird perception. But that, that's, that's so interesting that we're the, in the first place in the world to decriminalise. Yeah, New South Wales, first place in the world to decriminalise sex work. So there are other countries that have like a legalisation or licensing model. Like, So what's the difference, sorry? Do you mind quickly explaining the difference? Oh, yeah, that's bit? all good. So legalisation or licensing means that sex work is subject to different rules and regulations than other industries. So the legalisation or licensing model can change from place to place. So it could mean that you have to register as a sex worker or it could mean that it's legal for you to work in a brothel but illegal to work privately or it could mean the opposite of that. Like, And basically it's a really flawed structure because it allows for these kind of grey areas where it's legal for some people to work and not legal for others and also means that you have to jump through hoops that people in other industries don't have to jump through and also still leaves you exposed to police being, you know, difficult and, like, bureaucracy and things like that. Whereas decriminalisation just means getting rid of all laws relating especially to sex work. So it means treating sex work like any other industry. Like a normal job where you can't, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we got that in New South Wales in 1995, which was the first place in the world. And the reason we got it was because there was a Royal Commission into police corruption and they found that police were utilising the fact that brothels were illegal to like money launder and have sex with sex workers who didn't want to and like do all these really fuck things. And so they said the only way we can stop, like police are always going to be corrupt because they're human and fallible, right? So the only way we could take um, the sex industry outside of the control of um, and the corruption of police was by decriminalizing it and taking it outside police jurisdiction. So that's why we got it. Wow, that's quite impressive that that was the solution because I feel like they could have just said we're going to crack down on sex work and then make it even worse. Oh, 100%. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, also, there were years of campaigning before that by sex workers in New South Wales related to especially the HIV epidemic as well like we were able to prove that we had higher standards of like safety and condom usage than like non-sex workers and things like that but yeah it's incredible you yeah, wow so can you explain to our listeners why it is important to have that decriminalization and what the risks are in having sex work criminalized yeah so the issue with having sex work criminalized is that regardless of like your moral view on sex work like regardless of whether or not you think it should exist criminalizing it just makes the lives of people in the sex industry whether or not they want to be in it more unsafe. So just say someone is in the sex industry because they're a single mom, a migrant mom with three kids. She doesn't have the English skills or the education to get another job. So she goes into sex work and then she gets arrested for doing sex work. She goes to jail. She gets a criminal record. It makes it even harder for her to look after her children or ever go into any other line of work. So basically criminalizing it just means that you just fuck up marginalized people's lives even more like there's no point to doing it besides the fact that maybe you want to eradicate the industry completely but you're never going to be able to er- eradicate the happen. industry yeah exactly so that's that's the issue with criminalization well it's like in the u.s how there was that bill that was got sesta what was it oh yeah foster sesta and they got rid of all do you want to explain it explain better than i will oh yeah It was called Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act or Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. And basically what it did did in America was in America in 1996, they had a Communications Act, which meant that websites weren't legally liable for what users commented. So, for example, if someone, Craigslist, for example, if someone posted an ad on Craigslist saying, I'm selling heroin, Craigslist couldn't get sued for selling drugs, you know, that that's the user that did that, not the website. The website could choose to delete it, of course, but it wasn't the website's fault. Foster Sesta undermined that by making websites criminally liable for any sex work post because in America they classify all sex work as sex trafficking. So it meant that websites, if they didn't want to get shut down themselves, they had to start deleting any sex work-related stuff because they could be charged with sex trafficking. So it led to a whole realm of things changing. Like it's partly why Twitter got rid of all their not safe for work content. It's why, for example, it led to OnlyFans deciding to get rid of sex work content. Um, It's why Instagram and Facebook are so strict with their things. It's all because US websites hosted in the US don't want to be charged with sex trafficking. Yeah. And all that did was marginalize sex workers further. Am I correct in thinking that? Oh, 100% because it just meant they didn't have safe places to advertise a lot of sex workers had to go back to working on the street because they couldn't advertise and work from their homes. Like it's just, it's completely counterintuitive. And also once again, put sex workers, uh, made sex workers exposed to violence from police. Like sex workers, when they're interviewed, like in places with criminalization, always say they're more scared of violence from police than from clients. Because wow. police often rape sex workers when they raid places, you know, or like say, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to arrest you. Like all that kind of stuff. Like. Mm-hmm. Whereas clients aren't the yeah I said I read somewhere they said like seventy to eighty percent of your clients are good clients yeah most of my clients I get along with but it's the it's the police well, I guess in New South Wales though you're you're fine question mark or no what is it like in a decriminalized state yeah so it's I mean it's great here I don't have to worry about being arrested I mean obviously at the moment it's illegal to work because of lockdown but like um so are most other jobs yeah I don't have to worry about being I I have a whole level of stress that's taken off me. You know, I only have to worry about a client being shit. I don't have to worry about a client being shit and being arrested. (laughs) Yeah, at the same time. And your options are either call the police and be arrested or have violence towards you or stay with the shitty client, right? Exactly. Fucking hell. Speaking of OnlyFans, you wrote a piece for The Guardian titled OnlyFans isn't revolutionising sex work and using it ruined things I once did for personal pleasure. 
That's what it was called. And you speak about how OnlyFans only encourages one kind of sex work and how full-service sex workers can have their accounts taken down. That's one of the points we're talking about, but there's a lot more. Can you speak about how that happens? Is that because of Foster Sester? Have we just come full circle? I actually don't know if OnlyFans is US hosted still. So I'm not sure if that's directly. Foster Sester is part of it. But also, for example, OnlyFans got deleted off the Apple, you know, apps that you could download a long time ago because there's sexual stuff on it that could be seen as sex trafficking. So OnlyFans decided to get rid of sex workers also because of pressure they were being put under by MasterCard and Visa, which are bringing in new anti-sex work stuff or actually have now or it's about to come in, I think, in early October. So they are doing that because all the press around that was they, they are, they aren't, they are, they aren't. Yeah, they were, and then they retracted and said they're not. But they are, I think, who fucking knows? They might turn around again and kick sex workers off. Like, it's all very, very uncertain, quite precarious. But OnlyFans, for me, like, none of that for all was a shock to me in any way. Because for me, OnlyFans, and for any other full-service sex worker, OnlyFans was already an unfriendly place because they will kick off your account if they know you're doing full-service sex work elsewhere. So if you have an escort profile that they find or like an escort Twitter or something, they'll delete your account and like confiscate your earnings. So it was only ever a friendly space for certain kinds of sex workers anyway. And you think that's contributing to the fetishization of sex workers as well that you're speaking up before? Definitely. I think like Beyonce, like referencing OnlyFans, for example, like it's like it's made one kind of sex work hyper visible, which is online sex work. And yeah, it's definitely feeding into like the trendiness around sex work. And I mean, the reason I wrote that article was because I was like, this is great. The, you know, online sex workers are getting visibility and are making lots of money and stuff. But like, let's not forget that most other sex workers are completely shut on by like legislation. Yeah. And then you also spoke about, I thought this is so interesting, about OnlyFans being the get rich quick myth of the modern age. I also recently heard, I don't know if anything about this, but how OnlyFans is actually an MLM question mark someone said to me what's an MLM mean multi-level marketing where like if you recruit someone for OnlyFans you can get a certain percentage of their earnings oh yeah you do get that I've never actually done that but I've never thought about it as being an MLM I guess it is in a way yeah I guess it's just that's not the only way to make money on it so I suppose that's why people don't think of it traditionally as that because yeah true it's not a closed circuit economy uh, where you can get it externally as well. Yeah. There's a get rich quick myth, which which I think is really perpetuates everything. Like, you know, I think I have friends who are strippers, for example, and they've during the pandemic been like, well, if I need to get money, I'll just do OnlyFans. And I think there's, that's kind of like the go-to, like, I'll just do OnlyFans because it, it's like a get rich quick. But can you explain the realities of it? The reality is it's like, sure, the top 2% are making a fuckload of money. That means 98% aren't. And the other thing is you can be in the top 2%, for example, for one day and you'll have that banner appear that you're in the top 2%. I appeared in the top, I don't know, 1.5% for a day or something. And you can screenshot that and then you can promote yourself as being in the top 2%. But you may have actually only been in the top 2% for a day. So all these people online that you see promoting themselves as top 2%, that's a marketing tool to make people sign up to their particular account, of course. Like, I understand that. But that isn't necessarily the reality. So this sort of, like, proliferation of, like, success stories, firstly, is false because not all of those top 2% are in the top 2% at the same time, you know. And also, we're forgetting about the other 98% that aren't making much money at all. Yeah, right. And I also saw you said that there, in 2018, there was 75 million users now there's 85 million users so that percentage actually is while it's having more people the i guess the gap in earnings is getting bigger exactly and there's also so many creators but not that many more subscribers so it's like you're also just splitting it all between like a splitting the pie way. yeah yeah it's just getting smaller and smaller and then there's celebrities like Bella Thorne who come along and yeah and Bella Thorne Bella Thorne Caroline Calloway she's on it too both of them I got no time for is Caroline <laughs> Calloway on there what does she do on there yeah Caroline Calloway's on there and she did this awful tweet where she said like I'm gonna stand out from other people on OnlyFans because I went to Cambridge and everyone was like oh. do you think that sex workers aren't educated like what the fuck is this like there's so she... many other people who have a university degree <laughs> That that woman, I've heard an interview with her and I actually 
I couldn't finish the podcast. Like I, I listened to it and it was someone that wasn't agreeing with her. It was like someone being like, what the fuck to her? Like, and not fighting, but she, she's so narcissistic that she yeah. thinks everyone is agreeing with her and th- th- saying how wonderful she is. And you watch it and you're like, holy fucking shit. Like she, she has no idea. Anyway, Caroline Calloway, I'm glad that she went to Cambridge and she's different. Isn't she different to everyone? Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's so good. Well, speaking of the finishization of sex work, I actually wanted to speak to you. There's been a lot of discourse because are you on TikTok? No. I mean, I, people send me TikToks all the time, but no, I don't need another social media platform to spend my time yeah. on. There's been a lot of discourse that I've seen on my TikTok for you page about glamorizing sex work versus destigmatizing it. And a lot of this conversation has been from ex sex workers or people who aren't sex workers who are just feminist commentators. So I haven't seen anything yet that's from an actual sex worker. And I wanted just to speak to you about how you see that line and if that line needs to be drawn or if glamorizing sex work is okay. Yes, this is a great question. So firstly, I will say part of the reason why you don't see, you probably haven't seen many sex workers speaking about it on TikTok is TikTok is for children. So there's like rules about what you can speak about. So part of the reason I also haven't made a TikTok is because all the things I speak about are so graphically sexual that I'm like, there's no point, you know, like my videos would get deleted because they didn't fit the guidelines because it is for children. Yeah. And that's why there wouldn't be much stuff countering it. But I agree with those feminist commentators that it is negligent to glamorize sex work i totally understand when sex workers do it individually for marketing like they say i'm making this much money to draw in certain clients like i got this to make clients like buy more gifts for them that i understand but i am very careful when i speak about sex work to speak about the good aspects and the bad aspects and like i always have in my instagram i do say it it's fucking really emotionally exhausting work it can be work that you're very vulnerable in it can be work that you're dangerous in just because it's fucking dangerous being a woman in the world and being a woman in the world alone with a man is dangerous regardless of whether you're being paid or not yeah i don't agree with glamorizing sex work like i'm very much about destigmatizing it also i don't like glamorizing it because i think when we glamorize it and then you have people supporting sex work because they see it as this like wonderful thing i think it's really important that people support sex work because it's a workers rights and labor's rights issue rather than because they think the work is wonderful, you know? So, like, I think there should be space for, like, sex workers to speak about the bad things that happen at work as well as the good things, you know? Yeah. It's like the neutralization thing you talked about before where it's like we yes. think about it as an industry, not as something on a pedestal. And that's such an amazing point because I, I didn't know what to think because I was like, is this anti-sex work to think this way? Because, I, I like I said, I am kind of on the edge of that I'm like kind of dip my toes in with a few friends and people on TikTok were either ex or not sex workers but then they were talking about how the encouragement of women who are 17 turning 18 into doing sex work and how dangerous that can be do you have any thoughts on like an age where it's quote-unquote okay or do you honestly like I I mean I think Americans are obsessed with pedophilia they're obsessed with age-based discourse. Yeah. Like some of the shit I see on that comes from TikTok and is posted on Twitter where it's like a 34-year-old man is dating like a 22-year-old woman and everyone's like, oh, my God, he's a, a pedophile. pedophile. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like can we not have more nuance? No, there's a huge lack of nuance when it comes to these age conversations because 34 to 22 – I see. I had a thirty-year-old boyfriend when I was like nineteen or twenty, and it would have been like these are pedophiles. Like, was not a pedophile? I mean, was was there a power imbalance? Absolutely, totally. And also, he's my manager at work. Like, was there a power like struggle almost? Yes. I wasn't being around. Like, oh, I'm just mature enough to date him. He was probably just a bit of a loser. I don't think he was a pedophile. I was still an adult. I think the thing with America is, this is a different conversation, but it's interesting anyway. I think the thing with America is because their drinking age is 21, they see anyone under 21 as a child still, whereas ours, ours is 18. They do. So we see it as 18 and under, which is a whole conversation as to what we can, but they have a different, they say, you can't even drink yet. It's like, well, literally everywhere else in the world, a 20 and a half year old can drink. So if you're 20... And they've had that as the parameter? I think it infantilizes young people sometimes. And I think also, like, what they've recently seen in Texas, they recently just brought in a law that used to be able to strip from age 18 and now they've changed it to you have to be 21. And the issue there is, firstly, you have a number of strippers who've been doing stripping for years, and that's their income, who are suddenly out of a job, which is just completely fucked. And the other issue with young people doing sex work is you have to look at the reason why they're doing sex work. Like, I've had friends who started 
sex. I started when I was 20, but I've had friends who started underage in Australia, you know, like 17. And they started because they had a really awful family life and sex work allowed them to live out of home. So it's like, I don't think criminalizing those things ever really helps. Like, how are you going to make those young people safer? But yeah, I very much think it's to do with like perceptions on age. Like, I also, it's really hard to say with age because it's like, you know, I, I at 20 was fine doing sex work. I've had friends who tried doing sex work at 25 who it broke them because they were quite insecure and they really tied their validation to the opinions of men. And it was a really unhealthy job for them. And I think it's often an unhealthy job for people with low self-esteem or body issues because it's such a, it's such a body focused job, you know? So I think reducing those things to age is just like so redundant and like, just like so unnuanced. But like, yes, I do have an issue. I do have an issue with people presenting it as some of the TikToks that I've seen people repost is like, you know, a stripper being like, I made 20K tonight and posting all the cash and young girls being like, I'm going to become a stripper. And it's like the negligent thing about that is, yeah, you have one 20K night maybe, then you have fucking weeks where you're earning nothing. And the issue I have is that young women are encouraged into an industry where they don't actually have security especially when you're like a full service sex worker, you don't actually have security because you're an independent contractor. You're not an employee. You don't get superannuation. You think that you're going to keep earning as much as you're earning on the good night when you're not. And you're also encouraged to pour all your money into beauty treatments and plastic surgery and things when women are the ones who live in greater poverty in our old age. Women are more likely to be homeless in their old age. So my issue is less about women entering sex work, but more women not being taught about how to be financially savvy and set themselves up for their old age because I see so many young girls who enter the sex industry and just burn all their money, burn all their money on designer bags, burn all their money on fillers and then they get into their like 30s or whatever, they're earning less money and they're like don't have any savings, you know? Like I think it's an economic – Yeah, like financial literacy. Yeah, financial literacy, exactly. Right. That is such an interesting point. Okay, well, speaking about how you were saying that when you were 20 in the sex work industry, you were saying people who are older than you may not be able to do it if they have insecurities, if they have an issue with someone being, you know, kind of that close to them, quote unquote, like emotionally. But I saw your post, another post of yours about fucking casually, and a friend of yours asked you if you emotionally compartmentalize sex by only engaging in casual fucks. And I thought the caption was really interesting in you saying that people would assume it's because of sex work, but you say that your work has ever made you scarred, only romantic relationships have. That is such an interesting point. Can you expand? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always felt emotionally disconnected from my clients at work. Um, and I think that's partly because of my sexuality. And I think it's partly just because I've always had really good boundaries with work. So no relationship with a client has made me feel vulnerable or hurt or traumatized in the way some of my romantic relationships have because Mm. in romantic relationships in my private life like I often let my boundaries go I guess that's the whole point of a romantic relationship is that you let your boundaries go and also I've often been in relationships where people have treated me really badly and I valued myself based on how good of a girlfriend I can be in spite of them treating me badly, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that, actually. Yeah, it's about trooper. how much. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly what you're enduring. It's like a, how much you can sacrifice, how much you can endure. It's like you're a relationship martyr, and then at the end of this, I'm going to be rewarded. And it's like, uh, what is it, a sunken sunken cost Sunken fallacy. cost fallacy. Yes, where yes, you're like, exactly. but I put in all this effort, so I better get something out of it. And the more that I put in, the more likely it is. And it's like, no, babes, just get out while you can. Just get out. 100%. It's not good. And you've got to be enjoying it for the now. There's no yeah. point in getting a reward years down the track if you're not enjoying it now. The term like, sunken cost shouldn't exist in a romantic relationship. Like, I've got so much sunken it's true. cost. <laughs> so many people are like that. Though. So many of my friends, when they tell me about a relationship issues, and then they're like, oh, but I've been with him for six years. I'm like, sunken cost fallacy. Like, yeah. Sunk- like, even friendships, actually, speaking of this, even yes. friendships, people are like, we've been friends for so long, but they're a complete asshole. And it's like, like, if you don't like spending time with them, your 12-year friendship, like you were friends when you were, you know, 12 years old, now you're in your mid-20s, things may have changed, maybe you're different people, you don't have to be their friend just because you've been friends since you were kids. Like, I have... A hundred percent. 
it's also just this like kind of like like hallowing of like the term loyalty you know it's like people I feel like straight guys especially do it they're like loyalty you know I've been friends with him since he was a kid he may be a rapist but he's yeah loyalty and it's like what the fuck is this obsession with loyalty (laughs) yeah why do we have have to have blind loyalty in our friendships for them to be worth something I just I also think it's like it's totally okay to have like lots of short-ish term like five year long friendships that suit the place in your life that you are in like I have a few friends that I've had for like you know five to ten years but my needs in a friendship and what I want out of friends has changed as my life has changed and I think that's totally okay and you want to like you were saying be happy in the moment and have a feeling friendships in the moment whether they have a friend for a month or for 10 years I don't understand this concept that well I've had friends for 15 years okay do you like spending time with them oh totally like appreciate it for what it is you know like many many things serve you basically something doesn't yeah I mean doesn't have more value the longer it lasts I mean that is what something costs values <laughs> I just summarize it but um oh yeah so to answer your question basically yes yeah I feel like romantic relationships in my private life have definitely fucked me up way more than sex work ever has which is why I'm now practicing emotional celibacy in my private life which I actually got from a lesbian nun that term emotional celibacy can you explain that to me maybe I need to partake yeah so basically I mean I was reading this anthology of like lesbian nuns and this beautiful uh, it's interesting like there are so many lesbian nuns I mean, it makes sense when you think about it because, like, for a lot of Catholic women, the only other option besides, like, marrying a man and having lots of kids was to go into a convent, you know? If you're a lesbian and you've got a crush on your nun in high school who's teaching you, you, of course, want to end up in the same convent that she was at, you know? And also it was a convent or a way for women to continue being educated when they couldn't continue education otherwise, you know, because convents, you could learn about music and theology and stuff. So, yeah, convents were basically a hotbed of lesbianism, which makes so much sense, but, like, I also love. And so, yeah, I read this anthology and one of these lesbian nuns was a lot of you know lesbian nuns when they started becoming more into being sexual they left the convents but a number stayed and this one who I was reading who stayed in the convent and you know she's asked how can you reconcile the fact that you're meant to be married to God with being in lesbian sexual lesbian relationships at the convent and she said well I'm only sexual with these women I practice emotional celibacy. Right. I'm emotionally tied only to God. And I was like, oh, my God, that's perfect because we think about celibacy all the time in terms of physical celibacy. But emotional celibacy, like for me, my issue has always been becoming emotionally tied to people, not being sexually tied to them. So that's that's why I'm trying to have a few years of just emotional celibacy. Have there been times where you've been tested in your emotional celibacy where God has tested you? <laughs> oh, a hundred times. I've been I've been so tested. But I've been I've been so tested and all it did actually it, I was so tested last year and it fucked me up so much. And last year's lockdown I basically got like obsessed with this friend of mine overseas and we had this kind of like online fling or whatever. And like that fucked me up so much that I was like all the more reason for emotional celibacy. I was I was on the right track with that. Yeah. Time to join the convent. Time to yeah, time, <laughs> time to, to join the convent. I would love the convent. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So, but what do you think will end your emotional celibacy? Like, will it be like you decide, like, okay, cool, I feel healed, and you fall really easily. Is that wise while you're doing it? Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, definitely. I already feel like I'm actually nearing a point of being healed. Like I've actually told myself, I'm like, next year, I feel like I might be ready to date again. Like it really is. I can feel it happening um, basically because I'm no longer scared of romantic relationships. Last year I was terrified of romantic relationships, but that actually just disguised the fact that I still secretly wanted wanted one mm-hmm. yeah, because I was yeah. so terrified of it. Whereas this year I'm like, if it happens, it happens. So I feel like I'm getting to a good point. But definitely I – I mean, I don't fall really deeply in that, like, I, I can sleep with people casually and I have no interest. But if I am into the person, it's just, like, no holds barred, you know? Like, I'm just like – me. They're like the therapy topic every week. And my therapist is like, "Yeah, <laughs> who is this person? Like met them three times. She's like, yeah. this is not well. Like this is not. And th- yeah, I'm, I'm either like I will just fuck you and literally get up and leave and be like, I haven't thought about you for weeks. Or I am like, I'll meet you twice and imagine you holding my hand while I'm pushing out a baby. <laughs> You know what I mean? Oh my God, that's like, it, it, no, it's exactly it. And there's no in-between and you don't know what's going to set it off. No, and it's scary. Yeah. Sorry, my therapist makes me write down things that the, the person that I'm like obsessing over has done that's good. And usually I can think of like maximum one. She's like, I think it's just you're a bit like your attachment issues are triggered. And I'm like, no, no, no this is this really funny thing. And she was like, she's like, that's in response to something you did. Like you were being funny. And, and I'm like, yeah, like 
We had we had some laughs, and she's like, "Yeah, no, literally the laughs." You did. Oh my god, I'm like, they laugh at all my jokes. They laugh <laughs> at all my jokes. People are like, "Chili, everyone laughs at your jokes," and I'm like, "No, but they laugh at my jokes in a different way. Like they really get all my jokes." <laughs> yeah, they get me. They get me on like a deeper level, and also like there's a lot to find out with them. It's like, no, they're just avoidant. Yeah, yeah. Like, they just don't want to be in a relationship. They just aren't emotionally available, and I'm like, "Oh my god, Fuck. you're so that's so funny because I'm always when I do fall for someone, it's always someone who's avoidant attachment style, babe." Story of my life, like story. Yeah. I was getting, I was getting better, and then it's all come crashing down. Re- Elise is not in. It's all come crashing down recently. It's back to avoidance central, which is not good for me. But you know what? It's a bit of a thrill in lockdown. Lockdown's hard as well because you. I. I mean, I'm. I wish I was being emotionally celibate leading up to lockdown because I am going crazy. Oh yeah, you live in your head in lockdown. You yeah. Oh my god, you only can think about the other person. It's fucked. Yeah, but I've kind of let it go now, but now we're almost out. So I'm scared that it's going to start up again once we're out. I'm like, I need an extra two months of emotional celibacy. I need <laughs> to do it. I don't think I'd be strong enough to not do it. Like when you are tempted, I'm just wanting advice now. When you are tempted by someone emotionally, do you distance yourself from them? Or do you, like, what do you, what's your strategies? I put in really strict boundaries in myself. So, like, I won't let myself look at their social media ever. For any reason, like I'll actually mute them if I really like them, so I don't see anything. I mute anyone that I remotely like or find attractive. I mute them and I stop them from seeing my stories, <laughs> so I can't look for their little thing. But they can't access me. I can't access them, even if things are going well. I'm like, sorry. Yeah, I so and then like I just like don't allow myself to read back over text we've sent. Like I basically just don't allow myself because you know the more you think about something, you create this kind of narrative of romance in your head and you're like selling yourself a story. I basically just don't allow myself to dwell on those things. If I'm driving along and I'm like thinking about the next time I'm going to see them and blah, 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 I'm like, no, call a friend. Think about something else, you know, because it's all about it's all about the habits in your mind. Okay, you've really helped me here. I'm sure Elise will be happy to not hear me complain every time I come into the studio about some other dickhead that I'm like, I'm just really hurt. And like, he texted me. <laughs> okay, the final thing I want to ask you is, are you writing another book? Yeah, so I've written another one. I wrote it at the beginning of the year. Oh, you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? It's actually a young adult. I mean, it kind of blurs the boundaries between young adult and adult because it's young adult but it has a lot of sex. Right. It's like late teen vibe. Late teens. Very yeah, like. late teens, early twenties. <laughs> yeah, late teens. Um, it's set in northern New South Wales. It's kind of like Twilight, except I would hope better written and more sex. So there is like a mythological element, like a magical realism element. And it's a lesbian love story. Okay, I'm gonna come. Yeah. Yeah, it's really because I thought there was a gap in the market with like young adult queer fiction with like a bit of a fantasy element. So it's basically about a girl in high school who like falls in love with another girl who it turns out she's half, I won't say which mythological creature because I don't want to ruin it, but there's like mythology tied up in it. Oh my God. And when's that out? I don't know because at the moment it's with my agent. Okay. So she hasn't taken it to publishers yet. So hopefully, I mean, hopefully touch wood like next year or the year after, but I don't know. And yeah, now I'm working on a third book or kind of was working on it and then lockdown threw me off. <laughs> can you do a third book about emotional celibacy or a podcast so I can listen to your voice and talk oh about Oh my god. Well, when you read my current book, there is emotional celibacy stuff near the end. Oh, thank God. I'll have something in there yeah. to keep me going. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a treat, you know, right at the end for you. <laughs> Just a little little treat for Abby. Yeah. <laughs> um amazing. Okay, so at the end of each episode we do a nightmare fuel from our guests. I mean, we did assume you'd have a good one. Do you have a good one? Yeah, I mean, I actually have so many good ones, but I wanted to do something that I haven't written about before and, like, isn't in my book, so you guys would have something unique. (gasps) Exclusive, exclusive, exclusive. Exclusive. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's horrible. I can't believe you did that. What the fuck? Would you mind just not going out with him again? This is very much nightmare fuel for me in that it felt like it was a nightmare while it was happening, but I also it's also kind of funny. So I had a – this was like maybe like four or five months ago or something before lockdown, and I have this client that's like a great client that I've seen for years. I'm going to call him Paul Big Dick because 
he has a big dick and that's how he's saved in my phone. Good on him. Because <laughs> you have to save clients as something to remember them, you know? Yeah, poor big dick. Yeah. yeah, great client, great client, really nice, always pays me well, always, you know, I always finish early and he lets me go, like doesn't hold me to the hour. The only issue is he always messages last minute, you know? It's always like, you available right now, right? So, like, I'm sitting on my couch with my housemate, like stoned as fuck, like so stoned that I couldn't even – get up to go to the fridge to get chocolate to eat, you know, like just like, <laughs> like that, level. Really yes. that yeah. level and poor big dick messages me being like, want to come around now. And like, it's, we do a lot of fetish stuff. So like I make 900 bucks when I see him. So, which is a huge amount of money for an hour, you know? Yeah. So like I get this message and I'm like, fuck, I got to go. Like I got to see him. My housemate's like, you can't even move. And I'm like, I, I know, like, what, what am I going to do? So I get up, I go to the fridge, I eat a whole block of chocolate in one go because, like, sugar helps you, like, process um, weed. Like, it helps okay. your metabolism. Do it faster. So actually, whenever you have the munchies, eat as much sugar as possible because it will help sober you up. Okay. So I, like, text him being like, okay, I'm, I'm heading there now. And, like, I get in my car and because I think I'm too stoned to get an Uber, like, I wouldn't be able to handle the conversation. And so I start driving to the city. Stop, and wait, I wait, because you're too stoned, because you're too stoned to sit in an Uber, you just how to drive the logic was so not there so I'm like in the car and as I'm driving I'm halfway across the Anzac Bridge and I like realize I'm too stoned to be driving I'm like this is actually fucked like this is dangerous and so my hand starts sweating on the wheel like I'm like I'm like I need to pull over but I can't anyway luckily it was like it was like nine o'clock on a Monday night and it was raining so there were no cars on the road so I was endangering only myself thank god well not, well, not really thank god babe but yeah kind of thank god yeah I mean better better than endangering <laughs> better others than too being you know? traffic. yeah yeah, exactly. I don't want to hurt anyone else with my stupidity. By the time I get to the city, his place is in Potts Point. I'm like, I'm already in the city. I might as well get all the way to his because I've got to drive home anyway. Like, I'm so fucking stoned. Anyway, he always has really long, drawn-out fantasies that he texts me beforehand. And every single time, it's a different fantasy that I have to act out. And the reason he's been seeing me for so many years is because he says I'm the only escort that's ever is able to memorize his entire fantasy because it'll be like oh, fucking no. like 300 words of like every little step you have to act out so like going up the elevator I'm always like reading it being like okay so then I spank you and then I pee on you okay 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 and then I spit okay and then I do this like it's like very complicated he's a visionary he should write um erotic literature or something he 100% should he 100% should so like this time he's like his one is that like I go in, I get, he's going to leave the door open for me. I walk in, I walk into the bedroom. There's going to be ties tied up on the bed and I'm going to lie down on the bed spread eagled. And then he's going to come and tie me up. And then he's going to like come and like rub his cock all over me. And I'm going to do this stuff. And like, there's this whole like uh, progress. And at some point I'm going to pee on him because there's always a golden shower involved. Anyway. So I get, I get to his, I pull up, I come up the stairs, I walk into his apartment door. And, like, I go and lie down on the bed, as he says. I'm naked lying on the bed and, the, you know, there's no lights on and I close my eyes like he's asked me to. And then I'm so stoned that I kind of forget where I am. Like, and I'm, like, think that I've been kidnapped, you know, because I'm lying naked on a bed in a strange room. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, like. <laughs> Spread eagle. Stone yes, as shit, eagle. full of sugar. Your heart's and racing. Also, so my heart's sure. racing. My heart's <laughs> racing and I'm terrified. And also, like, it's like I'm, like, can't even – In when you're so stoned, you don't know how much time has passed as well. So, like, I'm lying there thinking I've been lying there for, I don't even know, like, hours. Like, I have no idea. And I'm, I'm so scared and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm somewhere random. Men are going to come in and rape me. Like, I've, and, but I'm too scared oh to move. God. I'm too scared to scream. And so I'm just, I'm just lying there. And I'm, my whole body is sweating by this point. Like, I'm actually just, like, completely sweating. Anyway, like, finally, he, like, comes. And I think like, I should never have left my home. Like, this is actually terrifying. Like, oh, finally, he must come into the room because I feel some hands, like, tying me up. That is not what you want at this point with your mental – You this is the opposite. You're like, and finally, I feel hands tying me up, confirming my suspicion that I've been kidnapped. Exactly. I feel like he's tying me up and I'm like, oh, my God, I just really hope it's him. Like, you know, like, and I don't want to be un- – I'm still so professional that I don't want to say, Paul, is that you? Because, like, I don't want to admit that, like, I'm stoned and fucked up. So I'm just, like, <laughs> lying there silently trying to pretend I'm cool with this. Holy shit. And then, like, he gets up on the bed. And he starts to, he kisses me. And that's when I realized, okay, it's him. Like I can recognize it's him. So I relax a little bit. But then it becomes this kind of sensory deprivation thing where I'm so high that I don't know what's going on. 
So like I do BBBJ with him, which means bareback blowjob because he pays me a lot more and I've seen him for a really long time, which I, isn't usually standard service for me. But with him, I do it. He goes, open your mouth. I open my mouth. And then I feel this. What I think is, I think he's putting my his toe in my mouth and my mouth is so dry from being stoned that I'm just like, uh, uh, he's dabbing in my mouth and I'm like what is this I don't want to be sucking his toes like I hate this oh I don't God. want to say anything unprepared. and then it takes me a few minutes to realize that it's actually his oh. dick in my mouth and I just hadn't even recognized it and then like I'm trying to give the blowjob but I can't even get saliva up because I'm so stoned I'm giving this like really manky blowjob oh. like it was just like Anyway, finally he like goes down on me and then he undoes me and then we go to the bathroom and the lights are on, which is just like so fucking good. I like, can see where I am and I like pee on him and it's all great. Great, thank God. As we finish, he's like, he's like, oh, that was really amazing. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little bit stoned. And he's like, oh, you're stoned. He's like, that's so cute. I love that. You should come stoned next time. And I can't be like, that was one of the worst experiences of my life. Like I was in literal terror (laughs) pure panic also i love though that you still got all of the hit all the points you still memorized that text you still got it obviously i mean he was happy with the service so you have just he loved it even in your most stoned state you are so professional despite the dry mouth but he didn't even didn't even notice so really, firstly, thinking of the points was about the only thing keeping me okay. Was I'd be like, okay, just go over the list again. And the other thing was, yeah, he loved it. He now asked me to come stoned all the time, and I'm like, I'm not coming over stoned again. Like I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and he just thinks it was like such a sweet, intimate time. <laughs> He's like, that was beautiful. That's so great. You feel vulnerable enough with me, and you're like, babes, I just forgot to Anne's like bridge. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. And then you drive home. The drive home was awful as well. No, I mean, God, to be honest, the adrenaline, the fear had, like, sobered me up by the time I was leaving. Like, I actually was, like, in an acute, like, state of panic. So by the time I was leaving, I just, like, I actually think most of the weed had just been, like, raced out of my system by my heart. But it was, like, I got home and I was, like, to my housemate, she was, like, after you left, I felt like I shouldn't have let you go. And I was, like, you shouldn't have let me go. (laughs) Yeah, confirm. At least we know for next time, dolls. Don't let me go because there was that babe. That is, I reckon that's the worst one we've had. I didn't learn. I did it another time, but I did it on Seracool instead. I'd taken my Seracool and he messaged me, and I was like, "Can't say no to the money." So I went. Wait, Seracool is a sleeping pill. What Seracool? Yeah, it's a sleeping pill. Yeah, it's like a really strong. Oh my fucking god! Sorry, producer release. Seroquel knocks you out. What is Seroquel? I take it as a mood stabilizer for my bipolar. But like when I first started taking it, I would go to classes and just fall asleep in class at university. Seroquel is like a fucking tranquilizer. Tilly, I think we need to have a talk. Your roommate needs a strongly worded text sent from me. Please don't let her leave the house. Don't let me leave. I'm like, the money, the money. And also he's such a good client. But, yeah, no, the Seracool experience was, to be honest, the Seracool experience was less scary than the Stones experience because, like, I wasn't scared. I was just, like, completely, like. No paranoia. You were just. No paranoia. And he just thought it was part of me being, playing, being submissive. Like, I actually probably did the best submissive role I've ever done. Wow, poor Bill Dick is really winning here. Or he's so oblivious, but we love him. He thinks he's winning, yeah. (laughs) Oh, bless him. That was fucking, that was, I just can't, there was so many, I bet I'll have a dream tonight and it'll be me experiencing that. I can fucking guarantee now it's (laughs) in my head. I'll have, fuck me. Um, It was so amazing to talk to you. I love chatting to you. I'm sorry it was like, question, 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 because I was like, literally, I had so many things to chat to you about. Um, Do you want to plug your pluggables? Everyone, where should they find you? What should they buy? What should they partake in? Oh, um, so yeah, pretty much the only social media I use is Instagram. So that's at Tilly underscore Lawless. And then I have a book out called Nothing But My Body with Alan Unwin and you can buy it. Um, on Book Depository or Dimmings or wherever, really? Yeah, or Bookstore. Yeah, there's a link in there's a link in Tilly's bio as well. So if you want it the easy way, <laughs> the easy way, go to my bio. But thank you so much. That was so much fun to talk to you. You're a delight. So much fun. You too. Absolute pleasure.